Morning, everybody. Good morning, everybody. Oh, someone conscious to talk to. Praise the Lord. Thank you. Um, as is our custom, and hello, good morning to everybody out there who is watching here and abroad. As is our custom, let Scott get untangled from his wires and get everything situated here on this wonderful pulpit. And then we will consult our Voice of the Martyrs Prayer Guide. Let me bring to your attention believers in the Lord Jesus in Mali. I uh, don't know if you're acquainted with the nation of Mali. Mali is on the western coast, towards the western coast of Africa. Voice of the Martyrs had, has designated the nation of Mali to be hostile. Not quite restricted, but they are hostile to Christianity in this country. Mali was once an Islamic cultural center. Mali is a very poor but growing country that remains nearly entirely Muslim. Although missionaries arrived in the early 1920s and have worked in most areas of the country, less than 1% of Malians are Christian today. Small congregations of believers continue to worship in towns known to be centers of jihadi activity. Very dangerous. Several missionaries have been kidnapped in Mali or have been kidnapped and brought to Mali from neighboring countries since 2016. Most of these are still in captivity today. In 2017, threats by jihadi groups led some mission agencies to regret, regrettably actually pull their teams from the country altogether. Most practice some sort of pagan animism, which is ancient there, or Islam, Sunni, or both branches of Islam. Extremist groups do persecute Christians in this country. During the 2012 Civil War, believers fled to the south as extremist groups in the north sought to create an Islamic state. You all probably recall those days. Churches and pastors' homes were destroyed, but believers were usually not otherwise harmed. Christian converts from Islam face harassment from family members and society. There are open and active churches in the north, but some believers are leaving for the south as the situation worsens. One pastor was forced to leave after receiving several significant death threats. His wife is still dealing with related trauma. A few evangelists have been imprisoned for short periods, thank goodness, short periods of time, after being accused of proselytizing. It is very difficult to gain access to a Bible in Mali, so we need to pray for that in particular. Voice of the Martyrs provides Bibles, pastor training, safe houses for persecutions who are perse persecuted there. So please remember in your prayers, particularly today and this week, Christian believers who are in, in Mali in Western Africa. Next week will be Mauritania, another country, I believe, in, near the west coast of Africa. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, ruler of heaven and earth, we thank you for the beautiful autumn weather. We thank you for creating us to be part of your plan, as Paul is teaching, and to be able to draw from the power that decreed the plan and that is executing the plan even as we speak, and will bring that divine plan to total and perfect completion at the return of our Lord Jesus Christ, when, as Paul writes, all things are summed up in Him, His reign and His rule. Thank you for creating us and saving us and placing us in this plan. 
Each and every day that we live, help us to never lose sight of the plan, the big picture that you have very graciously and mercifully given us. We pray for our brothers and sisters in, in Mali in Western Africa and their place, significant place in this plan to grow the kingdom of Jesus Christ, the kingdom of Christ who fills all in all and is spreading and growing throughout the world in spite and in defiance of all opposition whose mission will triumph in spite of all opposition. Help us to follow in their footsteps in any way necessary in our little corner of the world, in our country, in our neck of the woods. Help us to do our duty by these folks and helping them in absolutely any way that we can, daily by praying for them, but giving to them of our substance to help ease their problems and their troubles, their heartaches, their situations and circumstances, which are very difficult. Help them in every way that they truly need help, that you know best, of course. And help us to never, by the power of your Spirit, to never be allowed to forget them and these other believers the world over for whom we are praying. We pray for our folks here in our own little family, for Warren to heal up from his surgery. Thank you for taking him through that. And we pray you will heal his body and remove these troubles from him permanently. Thank you for your revealing your mercy and your grace through he and, and his family and their situation and circumstance this week. We pray for Isaac being sent to Saudi Arabia, that ancient, ancient land. Draw him closer to you and reveal your plan for his life as he is there in the Arabian desert. It's a very ancient and meaningful part of the world. Help him to realize this, and may this be a special time for him and his relationship with you in that particular place for many, many reasons. I pray for Shelley's aunt. Help her in this distressing time of, of her illness and her advanced age. Give this family the wisdom to do the right thing by her, and please help them to take care of her properly and ease the troubles and the heartaches of this family which has gone through quite a lot these past couple of years. Forgive us of our sins where we fail you and where we commit faults, failures and errors on a daily basis. We pray to you, O God, who is rich in mercy to pick us up and clean us up by the sacrifice of Jesus by the new life you have given us, by the power of your Spirit. Forgive us of our sins. Help us to pursue biblical holiness. Help us to be people of bravery and courage in these dark times in our country. And to follow in the footsteps of Christian martyrs of the past and of all of those who have, over the two centuries of our nation's history, had to sacrifice in some way or another to protect the very life of this country and the freedom and liberty that has been given to us by the worldview of the Bible, the Judeo-Christian worldview, the worldview of Western civilization, the worldview of this country as it was founded. Thank you for healing our president and for bringing him home, putting him back to work, 
I pray for he, I pray for our vice president, I pray for their families, I pray for their salvation, their health, their well-being in every way. Give them the wisdom and the courage to do what is right at all times and to fight for what is right and to defend what is right. I pray that you will inspire every American citizen of character and integrity to rise up and fight the good fight for all that we cherish in this world and in this country. Help us to do our duty not only by the some 300 millions of our, our fellow citizens, but by the millions of people the world over who are watching us and who are counting on us to keep the light of hope and freedom and liberty alive in this world. We pray for mercy on our country, which frankly deserves your judgment for turning away from you. Humble our people and bring them to repentance, whatever it takes. Whatever it takes. Exercise your omnipotent power, which Paul preaches in this passage, in the lives of every individual person and over this nation and over the nations of the world. You are the sovereign, omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient God who has a plan over all who is the ruler and authority of every dominion and ruler and authority in this universe. Compared to you, there is no other power. Reveal yourself to us, your gospel to us, to this country again. Show this world your power and your authority over all things and over our ultimate enemies, our spiritual enemies. And we thank you that Jesus Christ our Lord at the perfect era of the divine plan arrived in a human nature and in a human body to crush the serpent's head and win the victory. And now, thank God, our enemy is on a very short leash under judgment. Never let us forget that when we go forth to do battle against the evil one on a daily basis. This is to train us, to prepare us, to season us for the world to come, to rule and reign with the Christ when he returns. Help us to live our lives accordingly. Let these truths inspire and motivate everything that we do, everywhere that we go, in the presence of everyone that we're with. May you be glorified in each and every member of this church, those who are watching, and those who are traveling and those who are here. May your perfect will be done in and through all of us. Glorify yourself, O Lord God, our rock and our redeemer, at our expense. Glorify yourself at our expense. For you are worthy, O Lord, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so as King David writes, in the ancient psalm, may the meditations of all of our hearts and the words of my mouth be pleasing to you, O Lord, our God, our one and only rock and redeemer. You who are the world's only hope and you who are more than hope enough for one and for all. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand for the reading of the word of the Lord. Ephesians chapter 1 verses 19 to 23 is the particular passage that we will unpack today. These verses, it is Paul's prayer. First of all, we studied his benediction, as it is traditionally called, and which inspires him to launch into a lengthy prayer, how he prays for the church and the things that he is praying for each and every believer in Ephesus and for all of us to understand, to comprehend, and to appropriate these truths and put them to work in our life. Paul's Prayer, Part 2. 
Ephesians chapter 1, verses 19 to 23. Conclusion of the chapter and conclusion of Paul's prayer. If you'll permit me, I'm going to back up just a little bit because it's so hard to separate this, this prayer in a nice, neat little section. So I'm going to back up a bit and get, as I call, forgive the expression, a running start into the ending of the passage that we'll actually unpack. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance of His saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of His power towards us who believe. Today's passage. These are, these things that I am praying for you, that I have been teaching you, these things are in accordance with the working of the strength of His might, which He brought about in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the age to come. And He has put all things in subjection under His feet and gave Him as head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. Amen. These are the words of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, folks. You may be seated. So the conclusion of chapter 1, the conclusion of Paul's prayer, verse 19b. What is the surpassing greatness of His power towards us who believe? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of His might. That is, these things, this deep these things that I am teaching you about, these things that I am telling you about, these things that I am praying that you will understand and comprehend completely and fully by the power of the Spirit. That's what Paul is saying. All of these things that I've been teaching you, that I've been praying that you will understand wisely and well and appropriate the truth of these things to your life, all of these things, these truths are in accord or in accordance with the working of the strength of His might or some translations according to the working of his great might or yet again according to i like this one according to the powerful working of his mighty strength paul here is once again piling power words one on top of the other almost in a literary sense going over the top or going to extremes but he's not he's not at all because he's describing the greatest power that a finite human being could possibly try to comprehend the power of the infinite God, Father, Son, and Spirit. So here Paul emphatically, emphatically, pardon me, is stressing one of the attributes of God. And I'd like to bring this to your attention because this attribute of God was stressed in the psalm that we have been studying lately. The omnipotence of God. This is one of the most wonderful passages or expressive or explicit statements in the New Testament to describe the attribute of the omnipotent God. The God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who is omnipotent, all-powerful, who possesses all strength and all might and all power, who is the very source of all power, whatever that power may be. So Paul is emphatically stressing the omnip omnipotence of God and what it means for you, Christian believer. The working of God's power in His divine plan on behalf of His redeemed people. Paul is stressing this truth, this reality, with three more terms for power. Paul is um, 
Well, I believe in this case he's not exactly going to extremes. He's using all of these words, piling them up one on top of the other. In doing that, he's telling us that he is having a really hard time adequately describing what the power of God really is. We're trying to get through to the reader how powerful God is. He's exhausting the language at his disposal in trying to describe the omnipotent power of God, the greatest power that exists, the source of all power. This is the power that is at work in you. This is the power that is at work over you. This is the power that is at work in and over and through His church. This is the power that spoke the universe into being. This is the power that defeated all spiritual and other physical powers or authorities. This is the power that is keeping the divine plan humming right along, being perfectly executed, even as we speak, until its completion at the end of the age, when a new age, the eternal age, then begins. Paul nearly exhausts the Greek language in its power denoting, denoting pardon me, words and terms. Working of the strength, working of his great might, powerful working. This is how he piles it on. One of the words he uses there is energia. Sound familiar? It's the word by which we come by the English word energy. We had that last week as well. God works with great energy. It is describing his vitality, his energy, and his strength. Power. The word is dunamis or dynamis, by which we come by the English word dynamite. Explosive, if you will, irresistible power or force. That's what dunamis means. Strength is kratos, odd little word. It means force, or kratos really means uh, the ability to exercise power or strength. And the last word he uses is kind of an obscure one, iskus. Iskus is hard to translate into English. It means something of force or power, but iskus, if I may be a little blunt, means brute strength. And if you notice, many of these words are roughly equivalent. Some of them are practically synonymous. Yet Paul just keeps piling them on, one on top of the other. And by doing so, he is telling us that there is no language that can adequately describe God's might and God's power and God's omnipotence. This is the strength that is working a divine plan in your behalf, Christian believer. This is the source of your hope and your assurance and your confidence. If you are born of God, as Jesus himself and Paul would say, and you truly belong to him, and by virtue of that fact you know that you are part of a divine plan predestined from before the foundation of the world, this power that Paul is describing holds you and has saved you, and has made you part of His plan. And that plan will not and cannot fail. This is what should permit you to lay your head on your pillow in peace of the night. No matter what hell and chaos is raging in the world around us. So, Paul is proclaiming that God's power, the power of the one true God, is the only true divine power in and over this world and this universe. There is no other power on earth or in the cosmos in the spiritual realm that can possibly compare. That's what the man is saying. Go to God, Ephesians. Go to God, 21st century Christian believer. Take strength and refuge in His strength and His power and His might, for none can resist His strength. And believers have access to this power.
That's one of the most important points that he's going to teach us throughout the remainder of this letter. You do not have to fear this power. Others do. You do not. You are to rejoice in this power and to draw from it. God's power is to be seen and experienced, working itself out in and over the lives of believers. And Paul will continue to teach this and preach this in various ways throughout the remainder of the letter. We are to resist evil in his strength and might. We are to defeat and fight against evil and evil forces by his power and his might. We are to live virtuous lives, Paul will teach us, not by our strength, but by his strength, his power and might. We are to reflect God's character in this world, certainly not by our power and strength, but by his. And we are to manifest and fill this world with his kingdom by his power and his might, not our own. Verse 20. The working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and when he seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. So, first phrase, let's unpack. Which he brought about in Christ or that he worked in Christ or that he is working out in Christ, which he powerfully worked in Christ. Paul is saying... The sovereign, omnipotent God worked out His omnipotent power in this world, in the divine plan, in or through or by way of Christ. If you want to see the omnipotent power of God at work in this world and the divine plan, look to Christ. There you will see the omnipotent power of God at work. So Paul's elaborating a bit, isn't he? He's teaching on or about the irresistible working of the power of God in Christ. First of all, God works. He exercises His supreme power, His divine might, His divine strength in behalf of believers, specifically here, first of all, by raising Jesus from the dead. You want to see the omnipotent power of God at work? Look to the resurrection of Jesus. You want to look to the omnipotent power of God on your behalf, Christian, and be Christian believer? Look two millennia back to the resurrection of Jesus in the first century A.D. Perfect example of the omnipotent power of the sovereign God at work in history. By raising Jesus from the dead. And next, then, by seeding Him, establishing Him, Jesus Christ, God the Son, at the place of cosmic rule and authority at His, God the Father's, right hand at the completion of Jesus' mission. This draws from the prophecy of the Old Testament Psalms as well. I'm throwing this in here because I believe Paul is paraphrasing a Psalm 110. He is drawing from Psalm 110, and I bring it to your attention because we have studied Psalm 110, and in our Bible study for some months now, we have been in the Psalms. The Spirit is inspiring Paul to draw from the ancient prophecy of Psalm 110. Verses 1 and 2 in particular, which states, The Christ, the Messiah, who is not only human but is divine, is to be seated and rule at the Father's right hand in an ultimate and lasting future. Psalm 110 declares, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. In the ancient Hebrew, Yahweh said to Adonai, the I am said to the absolute Lord and Master Adonai. In other words, the Father said to the Son, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. At the end of history as we know it, 
when the divine plan is all wrapped up or summed up in Christ. Now, in the ancient world, to take one's place on a seat assumes authority. To take one's place on an assumed throne or any seat of authority rather than standing was a quite an obvious sign in the ancient world, which was an expression of royal authority or rule, here divine authority and rule. Christ now rules the universe with his Father, Paul states. He always has. He is now, and he always will. And now he rules at the right hand of the Father in his incarnation, in his risen human body and human nature. Theologian Frank Fielman, allow me to quote him, he writes, Jesus' resurrection led to his exaltation, his ascension, his coronation days, King of kings and Lord of lords, in his risen incarnation, to a place of equal regal authority with the very king of the universe. Just as Psalm 1 states that the Lord Yahweh shares his authority with the messianic king at his right hand. Believers experience this effect of power through their union with Christ in his death his resurrection, and his exaltation, end quote. Tremendously important. When Paul writes, when he raised him, raised Christ from the dead, he is stating one of the most single, important, paramount, absolute truths of the Christian faith, the bodily, physical resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The cardinal foundational event. That's why I liked you folks singing of the resurrection of Jesus. The cardinal foundational event is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, proving He conquered all death and all hell, proving that He perfectly fulfilled His mission, and God the Father accepted His sacrifice on our behalf. He conquered all the spiritual forces in this universe in rebellion against God the Father at His cross and His empty tomb. The cardinal truth of the Christian faith. Christianity stands and rises or falls upon the resurrection of Jesus of paramount importance. The bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ is your hope, your final hope, your only hope, and your ultimate hope. And more than hope enough. And here, if you notice, it is a Trinitarian work, yes, the resurrection of Jesus. But here, Paul specifically attributes Jesus' resurrection to the power of the Father. Because Christ conquered death and Christ was raised, yes, Christian believers shall conquer death and shall be raised. There's your hope for an afterlife. There's your hope that your soul and your body will one day live on. Might want to take into your consideration for your devotions this week a nice little reread of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the resurrection of Jesus Christ and what that means to you, the great resurrection chapter of the Bible. But he doesn't stop there. Onwards and upwards from there. There's another event which took place 40 days or so after the resurrection of Jesus. It's the event which we call the Ascension, and which we sadly neglect, and we should not. It's a magnificent event, one of the most magnificent events in history, according to the divine plan. The Ascension of Jesus, when He went back into eternity. Back into eternity. Back into a place, probably another dimension, as we would say, out of time and space in this universe as we know it. The throne room of the universe, the seat of cosmic authority and rule. The place where the infinite God localizes His presence and rules over His creation from that place. And Jesus in His risen body is there. 
enthroned and in control and keeping the divine plan humming right along until it is time for his return to wrap it all up or sum it all up as Paul says and seated him Christ at his right hand in the heavenly places following his resurrection God the Father Paul reminds us at that beautiful event of the ascension enthroned the Messiah Christ at his right hand the place of cosmic rulership holding all power and all authority the ascension is sometimes called Christ's session have you ever heard of this it is sometimes called sometimes called Christ's session Christ is seated in session it's like when a parliament or a congress or a government sits in session they have taken their seats in session exercising rule or authority like we say court is in session when the judge enters the room and takes his place on the bench the place the seat of authority in the court this is Christ's session Christ seated in absolute authority this is in consequence of the divine plan his victory according to the divine plan the victory of his mission his perfect life his ministry his death his burial his resurrection it's a foundational truth taught by Paul in his previous letters Romans Colossians Philippians and others this is the meaning of Psalm 110 the messianic psalm of the rule of the divine Messiah the divine Christ of his reign his rule his triumph with God the Father Paul is stating this as as our hope as our confidence as our assurance by the way you need this you need this I see a lot of folks shaking their head mm-hmm you bet we do in 2020 we need this we need to know that the King of Kings and Lord of Lords is ruling and reigning on his throne and all evil in this world and in this universe is under his feet and one day will be once and for all take heart Christian believer it is not out of control it is under the authority and control of the omnipotent God according to divine plan no matter what those in rebellion against him may rant and rave and foam and rage and try to create anarchy and chaos in working their evil in this world they're done for they're done for. The victory has already been won two millennia ago on the cross and empty tomb of Jesus Christ. They are on a short leash, whether they know it or not, or whether they believe it or not. They are under the judgment of the divine judge who is now seated in session in the throne room of the universe. Never forget that. Never forget that. God the Father, by divine plan and power, manifested his vast power over all by restoring Jesus to bodily physical life and he manifested his great power over all by vindicating the atoning work of the Messiah in his resurrection and by exalting him to a place of absolutely unsurpassed rule and authority over his enemies over his universe all according to plan and he will enforce his rule and consummate his rule upon his return when as Paul writes when all things are summed up in Christ 
as he stated in verse 10 in the benediction. Verse 21, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Now, what is Paul saying here? He sits far above, or your translation may say high above. He means transcendently above. All rule, authority, power, and dominion. That's almost a formulaic expression. So let me unpack that for you. Rule is arches. Arches can mean one, number one, or out ahead. Arches can also mean head as in ruler. King, queen, emperor, governor, what have you. Authority is exousia meaning the authority to exercise great power. Not only does he have great power, but he possesses legitimate authority to exercise that power. The word for power is again donemeos, or dunamis, irresistible power. And dominion is curiotetes, from curios, lord, absolute sovereign master. So a curiotetos, or curiotetes, is a dominion, a province, a kingdom, which is ruled over by an absolute lord and master. The expression far above is huperano, far above, high above. It's hard to translate into English. I would paraphrase it as infinitely, uh, transcendently above and beyond. That is how he rules and reigns. A term actually that's unique to Ephesians. Christ rules completely and comprehensively over all, everything and anything that exists and that you can imagine. That's what Paul is trying to tell you. That's the point that he's trying to make, that he's trying to get through to us. Jesus is far above, transcendently above all. Jesus, God the Son, according to divine plan, by the authority of God the Father. He is supreme. He is superior over all powers in this universe. He is the real ultimate spiritual power and authority. Not only in the physical realm, ultimately, but in the spiritual realm, where our really dangerous enemies are. Where our ultimate enemies are. For the Ephesian believers, and for us, Paul declares Christ to be superior to all and any hostile power, all and any enemy power or authority. Spiritual, yes, and physical, you could arguably add as well. Also, I believe Paul is telling us something specific, though. He's getting specific here. Remember, Ephesus was a place that was renowned, even in the ancient world, for magic practices and the occult, where the cult of Diana Artemis was located. These people were obsessed with the occult and magic spells and incantations and the magic arts and all of that. You see what Paul's trying to get through to them? There is only one real ultimate spiritual power and authority in this universe, and it is not Diana and the 50 other gods who had temples in that city. It's not even the evil one that I've been warning you about. The ultimate power and authority is Jesus Christ, the Messiah, God the Son. He and He only. There is no other power in comparison. Draw from His power, rest in His power, and you will defeat all of the others because Jesus has already defeated them. And when he returns, he's going to mop it all up. Once and for all and forever. All right? So, Paul has in mind particularly here the spiritual enemies, the supernatural enemies, fallen angels, demons, evil spirits. The language he uses here, by the way, I should bring to your attention, um, 
rule, authority, power, uh, dominion. The language and terms that he uses here would have been quite familiar to folks in the first century AD. These, these terms are Jewish. They were very common in Jewish religious texts which described angelic beings, good and evil. And even the Gentiles, the Ephesians, right away would recognize what Paul is talking about. He's talking about the spirit world and evil spirits that we do battle with or that we have to be afraid of or that we have to be concerned about. They would have recognized this right away, both Jews and Gentiles in Ephesus. And many theologians and Bible scholars believe that Paul may be speaking um, by way of using these terms to denote or describe some sort of a rank or order or hierarchy within the angelic realm, both holy angels and fallen angels or evil angels or spirits. This is expressed and implied elsewhere in the Bible, by the way, in both the Old and the New Testament. Now, exactly or precisely what this hierarchy or this order may be, we're not exactly certain. But Paul may be describing this to an appreciable degree. But what is of importance here, Paul's point is, Christ Jesus is supreme in rule, power, and authority over them all, no matter who or what they are. And every name that is named... He even piles it on, driving his point home even further. And every name that is named, every spirit being, holy angel or evil angel, that has a name that could be named, whatever their name, whatever their title, whatever their rank may be, he rules and reigns supreme over them all. Every name that is named, not only in this age, this part of human history, according to the divine plan, as we're now experiencing it, but also in the eternal age, the age to come. In both, he rules over them all because he is the omnipotent God. Now, some folks scratch their head at this. Every name that is named, what, what is that all about? What, what, what does he mean exactly there? Well, he does mean every spirit being that has a name or rank or title could be named. But to fully help you to appreciate this, I've got to take you back 2,000 years to the culture in Ephesus in the first century Mediterranean world. It may help you to understand. Every name that is named, oh my, would the Ephesians latch on to this. Would they recognize exactly what Paul is saying here? Here's why. Well, first of all, um, do we know the names of angels? Do we know the names of demons? Do we know the names of spirit beings? Yes and no. They all have names. And presumably they have a rank. And they have a title, both holy angels and the evil ones in rebellion. We know a few of their names. We know the names of two archangelos, or archangel, ruler angel. One is Michael, the warrior, who in the Old Testament was the protector and defender and benefactor of the nation of Israel, the old covenant people of God. We also know the name and rank of another ruler angel, archangel Gabriel, who is a personal courtier, a personal ambassador and emissary of God himself who gazes upon the face of God round the clock. His personal messenger. We even know the name of our ultimate spiritual enemy, presumably Lucifer, son of the morning star, who entered rebellion and fell and became Satan, the devil, the slanderer, the accuser, the adversary, the enemy. But we don't know the name and rank of them all. In ancient times in Ephesus, I know this is a bizarre belief, but it was a pagan belief that if a person could gain or know or acquire 
a spirit being's name, then somehow you gain some sort of power over that spirit being. Or you could sort of harness the spirit being's power in some magic art way by gaining knowledge of the spirit's name or acquiring the spirit's name. It would help you to manipulate that spirit or deal with that spirit or get power over that spirit. Very popular pagan belief at the time Paul is writing this letter. So what is Paul is saying? Jesus has their names. He knows their names. Pardon the expression, he's got their number. He rules and reigns over them all. You don't need to know their name. He's got their name and he's got their number. They're under his control. That's the point that Paul is making. You ultimately, Christian believer, don't have to worry about them. Know your enemy and fight your enemy. He's going to go into the most famous passage of spiritual warfare in the New Testament at the end of this letter. But he's saying ultimately, at the end of the day, the day of days, you don't need to know their name or worry about them. He's got their name. He rules and reigns over them in authority by virtue of who he is. God the Son, by virtue of His power, by virtue of His authority, by virtue of His triumph in His incarnation, in His mission. Not only in this age, that is world history as you and I know it and experience it, understand it, but on the other side of the divine plan, in the new age, the eternal age, in any and all age, He rules and reigns superior and supreme over them all. What's not to like about that? There's your hope, there's your confidence, there's your assurance. Clinton Arnold writes in his commentary, Paul extends his pardon me. Paul extends his comprehensive way of summarizing every kind of hostile supernatural power even further by putting them in a temporal or time perspective. Do you see that's what he's doing here? In a temporal or time perspective, he uses the old familiar Jewish two-age division of history. This age, the age to come. He does that to make the assertion that Christ is now and always will be infinitely superior to any and every spirit being, good or evil. In this way, Paul assures his readers that there will never be a time when any spirit being, when any demonic spirit, when any angel, good or evil, when any so-called pagan god or goddess in any way will threaten or rival the supremacy of Christ. End quote. 22. And He, God the Father, put all things in subjection under His, that is, Jesus' feet. Let me read it to you this way. And God the Father put all things in subjection under Christ's feet and gave Christ as head over all things to or for His church or for the benefit of His church, His called and redeemed people. First of all, let's unpack this phrase. And He, God the Father, put all things in subjection under His, under Jesus' feet. So this is Paul's, what, third example of God the Father's mighty power at work, subjecting all things to Christ and under Christ. You who have your ESV study Bible, I'll quote the ESV study Bible's textual note on this verse. Quote, Paul quotes Psalm 8, 6. Quotation, paraphrase somewhat. He's referring you to Psalm 8, 6 nation or creation being sub subjected under someone's feet? Well, the ultimate fulfillment of Psalm 8 is actually messianic. It's in Jesus. Psalm, uh, 
Pardon me. Paul quotes Psalm 8-6 as being fulfilled by Christ's exaltation over all creation and his head over the church. Like a present-day head of government, this term refers to Christ's preeminence as Lord. End quote. Jesus, again, he's hammering this home. Jesus is the true universal Lord or ruler. The subjection of spiritual powers has taken place because of Jesus' perfect work and His perfectly completed mission in His first advent. His perfect life, His ministry, His death, His resurrection, His ascension. That subjugation will be finalized upon Christ's return when the, a the new age, the eternal age, begins. Jesus has already defeated all spiritual powers. But here's the point, Christian believer. Christ's redeemed people, Christ's believers, believers in Christ... We're in the already but not yet stage. We're awaiting the final consummation. When Christ will return and He will completely and forever subjugate every rebellious power, both spiritual and earthly. And then Paul writes, And gave Him as head over all things to or for His church, or made Him head over all things for the benefit of His people, for the benefit of of his church. Now Paul gives a fourth and final way that God has demonstrated his omnipotent or unsurpassed power in, by way, or through Christ, which is making Christ the final highest ruling authority over heaven and earth, over all creation. Now this is interesting. For the benefit of his church. To his church. For his church. This is for you. This is for redeemed human creatures who are to know their God and worship Him and experience Him and encounter Him and glorify Him forever. All of that was accomplished for you and me, individually and corporately. His church, His people, are to be, who are to be His companions in this perfect universe, the world to come, at the completion of the divine plan. It's for the benefit of the church. Christ redeemed predestined people that inspired Paul to give these four truths and examples of the vast, awesome power of God. God's power at work for, as Paul would say, for those who believe. Paul is praying that all believers will be able to... Comp you see what he's praying for in this prayer? Remember, this is part of a prayer. He's telling you how he's praying for you. All of these ultimate realities that we can be confronted with. And he's praying that you're going to get this that you're going to understand this, that you're going to comprehend this, that you're going to appropriate this truth in your life, to live your life wisely and well, this side of eternity, in your pilgrimage, on your way to the eternal age. He wants you to comprehend these things, understand these things, appreciate the vast power at work in the divine plan for your benefit. Head is kafale. It's like the English word head. You can use it literally or metaphorically. Kafale means the head is on your shoulders. It can also mean head as in first or out ahead, or head as in what? A king, a queen, a ruler, a authority. Here it means a ruler, a leader, an authority. Also kafale is head. I like this. It also denotes or implies somebody who is a provider, a benefactor, a protector. That is Jesus as head of his church. He is a ruler, leader, authority. He is also a defender, a provider, a protector. And always, that's what it means by Jesus being the head of the church. And head over all things. Kephalai huperpanta. 
in the original Greek. Huperpanta. All things means just that. All things, as in everything. Everything in the universe. Everything in creation. Spiritual and physical. Jesus is the head, the ruler, over the created universe and all that it contains. Over all things in this universe for the church, to the church, for the benefit of the church. I'll quote Clinton Arnold from his commentary. Man, have I been enjoying his commentary. Well, all of them, really. Here Paul also asserts that Christ and His status as ruling authority over the spirit powers in the whole universe is given to the church. <laughs> to Christian believers. How magnificent is that? What does it say about you and I? And our part in the divine plan. This is for your sake. As individuals and as is this body, cells of this body, the many who are the one, the body and bride of Christ, the ultimate e pluribus unem. Right? God the Father has granted Christ a great victory over the powers of darkness and now possesses full authority over, over them for the benefit of the church. This head, this kafale of the church is perfectly, completely victorious and the all-powerful Lord on this basis. Jesus Christ can impart to His church, His people, all of the empowering resources that His people need to resist the attacks of the evil one, to win triumph over evil in this world, and to engage in the mission of filling the world that God has called it to." End quote. And He's going to teach us. He's going to unpack these things throughout the remainder of the letter. Final verse, verse 23. He is head over all things to or for the benefit of His church. His church, which is what? Which is His body. The beautiful, wonderful metaphor of the people of God as Christ's very body in this world until He physically and bodily returns. Which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. Which is His body, the Greek word there body is soma, physical body. Body of a human, body of an animal, soma, body. So once again... One of the most beloved metaphors in the New Testament for Christian believers, for the church universal, the worldwide church. All believers as a body, Jesus' body. When people say we are to be His hands, His eyes, His ears, oh yes, you are. Quite literally. The physical body of Jesus in this world until He, in His risen incarnation, bodily and physically returns at the end of the plan. Jesus Christ has so identified Himself with His redeemed people, they are His very body until His return. He has so identified Himself with His redeemed people, and He is to be so closely identified with His people, that the church is said to be His very physical body in this world until He returns. We Christian believers are all parts of the body, many cells of one body, an organic, unified body. And notice that Paul speaks of the church as his body, not as a subjugated enemy under his feet, as the spirit beings, the spirit powers are. Christ's victory for the church. His power exercised in and over and through his church. His glory is for the church's benefit. And the church shares in the bounty and glory of Christ's victorious rule. Never forget that. No matter what's going on in this world. And if you don't pay attention to this, you will lose sight of this very, very quickly. 
and you'll start to become overwhelmed with the darkness that is around us and you will be in trouble. Never take your eyes off the prize, off of the plan, off of the big picture, as I like to say. Don't lose sight of the forest for the trees. We smash our faces up against ugly trees on a daily basis. Never lose sight of the magnificent vision of the forest here for the trees. Paul is here stressing that the church believers the world over All composed of people who, according to Jesus and the Apostle John, are born of God. They are a community. They are a body. They are a kingdom. An organic body with Jesus as the kafale, the very head, the very ruler, the very life of this community, this body. And this last phrase, which causes some folks to scratch their head a bit, because it's, it's a bit odd in English, and it's... Um, a bit peculiar to translate into English. This expression here at the very end of the verse. The fullness of Him who fills all in all. The fullness of Him, Christ, who fills all in all. Now what exactly is He saying there? That's a bit of a peculiar expression. Let's focus on the word fullness for a second. It's pleroma. I've given you this word before. Pleroma is a word that means if I was speaking of a jar, Pleroma means the jar is filled up with some sort of liquid or solid to the point where it begins to overflow. You cannot possibly put any more in, anything more in it, filled to overflowing. In regards to a plan or a goal, pleroma means executed to absolute perfection, completed down to the very last detail. That's what pleroma means. Or something, a kingdom, a province, a people filling completely up some sort of area, some province, some kingdom, some dominion, some landmass. It can also be arguably understood that way. Are you putting this together? Do you see what he's saying? Let me express it to you several different ways. This is what this expression means. And I refer to the ESV Study Bible again. The ESV Study Bible, I believe in the textual note on this verse, gives you an excellent interpretation of what Paul is saying here. Quote, The church filled by Christ fills all creation, or the world, as representatives of Christ. End quote. Christ fills all creation with His sovereign presence in, through, and by way of His church in this age. His church, His body in this age, preparing for the age to come. He's saying that the church is filled by Christ, the Spirit of Christ, and Christ fills the world completely through His church. This mission which is ongoing right now to fill the world with His kingdom, His people, His body. Christ's mission in filling the world with His kingdom, His body, His church, it's an ongoing process, an ongoing power. It's going on right now. This powerful process, powered by God's power, will continue until the final day, when the plan is complete, when the plan is pleroma. It's all filled up. All in all is filled. When God brings all things under the headship of Christ, when all things are summed up in Christ, that's what He's saying. The church is to be filled with Christ. Filled with His power and His presence. Filled with His love. Filled with His grace. Filled with His truth. These things are given to the members of the body by the exalted head of the church, the Lord Himself. 
who extends His reign throughout this world through or by way of His church, His body. The church accomplishes this mission by drawing on the power of Christ and by proclaiming the gospel and by living out, demonstrating, manifesting His kingdom, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Christ, in an authoritative and powerful way, His power in and throughout this world. That's what Paul is saying. And he wants you to completely grasp and understand and comprehend all of that. And never forget it. He's praying really hard that the Ephesian believers get this. And of course, by extension and association, he was praying for us. That all of the church, everyone who reads this letter, will appropriate these ultimate realities of life. Last word of the day I give to Brother Clinton Arnold again. He writes, Jesus is currently providing to the church his body all of the power, all of this power, all of the power, all the resources that the church needs to fulfill the mission to which he has called it. This is the mission he began and now continues through the church in this age. The principal goal of that mission is to fill all in all, reach the entire world, indeed people in every region and place in the world, with the redemptive message of the gospel, the good news of the person and work of the triumphant Christ, end quote. And if I may add, till the day when Christ returns and his rule and reign truly fills all in all. That's all you need. Get out there and live it no matter what. Sovereign Lord God, our Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, and we trust by the impetus and help of the Spirit, we thank you for your omnipotent power, and we honor your omnipotent power, and we recognize it, and we bow to it. And we thank you for declaring this plan and making us a part of it. Please give these folks the comfort and the hope and the assurance that they need by way of the truth of your power, which is working even now, always has been, and always will be. Give these folks peace through the knowledge of the attribute of your omnipotence. There is no other power in this world or in this universe that we need to worry about that we need to seek or that we need to bow and scrape to because we are in your power. O oh, sovereign God, receive our imperfect prayers. Have mercy on us and we thank you for your mercy. In the name of King Jesus who rules and reigns over all. Amen. Oh, I didn't see that. It's very pretty.